Today, in Future History. Welcome, sentient beings. Depending on what you do for your sustaining income, you may have occasions where the things that fill up your day are mundane and uninteresting. The same thing happens for moments in time and history, on occasion. Or, as in the case of the events connected to this date, August 29th, not at all. It was on this date, in 6451, Old Earth Standard Time Version 2, when the official beginning of the Interplanetary Coordinated Calendar Year, or ICCY, began, sometimes referred to as Icky. Earth orbits the Sun every 365 and a quarter Earth days. Mars, in contrast, takes about 687 Earth days, but also has its own day of more than 40 minutes longer than that of the Earth. Each of the orbitals has a different spin rate, orbital rate, and often an entirely shifted day-night cycle if they have one at all. For over a century, teams of scientists and events planners argued and fought over how to properly account for time and date across a multitude of planets, space stations, outposts, and traveling ships. Surprisingly, the conflict only involved three uses of weapons and only a single death. Unsurprisingly, they were unable to reach a consensus. Each of the planetary representatives insisted that they should have only local time. Earth also suggested that everyone else had to conform to their particular system of time. But everyone else rejected this proposal. Interplanetary delivery companies discouraged the notion of planets having different or uncalibrated time and date systems after several high-profile disputes about defaulting on 30 days or it's free offers. In the end, the solution was found by simply ignoring what everyone was looking for and picking something arbitrary. A standard timekeeping system was devised, one that was not based on any planetary events nor any other factors of location, culture, or preference. Instead, an artificial satellite was created by Fugit Enterprises, who released a comprehensive description of the time system and a free bit of software that would automatically calculate the local time and date based on whatever place you told it. The station was launched into space secretly, and climbed to its permanent position before announcing the accomplishment. It inhabited an orbit approximately midway between the Sun and Jupiter. Time was declared to be a copyrighted feature under control of Fugit Enterprises, who had a tremendous bank account and sued whatever business, government, or philosopher that disagreed with them into oblivion. To enforce its claim and provide the service for all local areas, Fugit kept time synchronized by requiring each client to either send very accurate and ludicrously expensive timepieces to the station, or having sent the materials to have them built at the station. These carriers of time would sync with the central clock and then be sent back to the clients at very slow speeds, to avoid any sort of relativity issues. These updates would be required every 1,430 days, or a significant drift would be introduced into the entire system. Most clients could not build the timepieces to the detailed, complicated, confusing, exacting standards required by Fugit, but would instead be required to send those raw materials to the station instead. This produced a steady supply of goods to the station, including often more than was strictly necessary, which would eventually become known as tribute. Despite the constant payment and some difficulties in the very beginning, the system became stable very quickly. No longer was Venusian pizza late 
and passengers knew exactly how old they were going to be by the time they arrived on Mars. It was true that occasionally the sun was going down on Earth during Blur's Day, despite the Fugit clock reading 6 a.m., but at least it was understandable, and they knew not to call their friends on Venusian stations. So stable was the system, in fact, that it became utter chaos when a small band of pirates invaded the station in 6515. The entire solar system quickly went out of sync. Everyone started searching for an alternative solution. Another station was proposed, but it would take quite a while to get working, and without the proprietary technology that Fugit refused to release, was nearly impossible. Besides, cynical leaders proposed, wouldn't that station just be taken by pirates itself? A military strike was suggested, but besides the problems of trying to organize any sort of schedule when everyone's sense of time was out of whack, when the rather informed pirates learned of the suggestion, they threatened to destroy the station themselves rather than let it be taken, which defeated the point of invading in the first place. Some weary leaders suggested just paying the increased tribute that the pirates were asking for, but the invaders had become cocky, and what they asked for was unrealistic. Finally, it was arrogance, indifference, and a lack of consensus which proved victorious. All the client nations stopped delivering tribute and just accepted the crappy scheduling again, which starved out the pirates until they were disappointed and left. Once the station was empty again, the client nations, under a reignited ancient compact, slightly expanded for reunited cousins, formed the common banner of COCC plus E, or Bigger Rooster. The group came together and shook their collective heads at the folly of an independent company owning all control of time. They designed the greatest treaty of all time, effectively deciding Fugit Enterprises out of existence. In this short but forceful statement, they agreed to declare joint custody of the satellite. It was turned into a military garrison, with frequently rotated attachments of equal representation of Earth, Mars, Venus, Neptune, and Plutonium troops. Over time, the station has become more and more central to all functions in the solar system. It has effectively become the United Nations of all space, more formally referred to as the COCCEIX, or Coalition of Civilized Civilizations plus Earth Interplanetary Exchange, now often less formally but more commonly referred to as a whole nother bird. The station hosts massive conferences every year, both related to political matters and others, and has a new growth in local businesses, representatives of some of the business guilds from each planet having forced their way in, although still following a rotating crew pattern. Oh, and the station still tells time from its own perspective. In fact, the station may be the only place in all the solar system where the time actually makes sense. This has prompted conspiracy theorists to suggest that it was the plan all along, to make this the center of the universe. The current staff at the station always denies it, but near the end of their shifts on the satellite, they usually all leave with a large wink, driving the spectators quite insane once more. This has been Today in Future History. Depending on when you experience this episode, you might be aware that no time has passed since the last episode, or that all the time has passed. We are not responsible for your subjective experience of reality, although we probably did influence it a little. Tune in tomorrow to learn that for everything that ends, there is something still stuck in transit. Stay calm, and remember that you might be hearing voices other than mine, but they are probably just as friendly. Mike, not Michael. 